My name is Daniel Colon Ramos. I'm an associate professor of cell biology and neuroscience at Yale University. This is the third of a three-part series, and in today's talk, I'll be telling you about changes that happen in specific neurons in the nematode C. elegans that allow the animal to perform a learned behavioral preference. My lab is interested in the cell biology of the synapse, and we study that question at two levels. How is it that synapses are established and maintained to sustain the architecture of neural circuits, and how they're then modified by experience and behavior? We have developed probes, which I uh, discussed in the first two parts of this lecture series, that allow us to probe that synaptic cell biology in the context of the living behaving animal to understand how the uh, ruling principles of the cell biology of the synapse are established both during development and how they're then modified during learning. In today's talk, I'll be focusing on the second part, how is it that synapse function is modified to enable the animal to learn. In the second part of the talk, uh, you, you can hear about our work regarding this first part um, about how synapses are built and maintained to sustain synaptic function. So the behavior that my lab has been focusing on to understand the interplay between the cell biology of the synapse and uh, behavior is the thermotaxis behavior. And it turns out that C. elegans does not have an innate preferred temperature. It can be trained to prefer a temperature. So animals that are grown at 15 degrees Celsius will, uh, when in a temperature gradient, will preferentially move towards the colder side of the, of the gradient, as you're seeing here. Uh, this is a behavior that was first described by Hedgecock and Russell in 1975. And we've been able to replicate it in collaboration with a number of labs, including Arabi Samuel at Harvard University. Now, if you take isogenic animals, those are genetically identical animals, and you perform the same experiment, but now you train them or you grow them at 25 degrees Celsius, when you put them in, a, in the temperature gradient, they will move towards me or towards the warmer side of the gradient. So just to break this down, these animals and these animals over here, they are isogenic, they're genetically identical. They're seeing the same experimental conditions in this gradient. The only difference is the previous experience. But that experience results in them performing two completely opposite behaviors. Now, we can quantify this. We can take the single tracks of, of the animals. We can center them so we can see which way they're going when they're grown at 15 degrees Celsius or 25 degrees Celsius. We can kind of quantify their, their decisions as they're moving towards their preferred temperatures. And the circuitry that underlies these uh, behavioral choices is known. It has been identified by a number of uh, groups, and because we have the connectome, or the map of connectivity for every single neuron, we know not only the identity of the neurons, but also who they're connecting to. So these triangles represent single cells, and AFD is the name of the, of the sensory cell that senses temperature. It forms chemical synapses onto a single postsynaptic partner called AIY. The names are not important. What's important, and the reason I'm emphasizing this, is that we know the identity of the cells and who they're connecting to. My lab has developed or adapted cell-specific promoters. I go into more detail about how we did that in the first part of this three-lecture series. But essentially, we can image single neurons in the context of the living behaving animals. All these micrographs, like the micrographs I've been showing in my lectures, were taken in the context of living animals. We can see this cell morphology, but also using similar approaches, we can image single, uh, single neurons in the context of the behaving animal, but also single synapses. And one of the things that we can do that is particularly important 
for this uh, talk today on behavior is that we can express in single neurons using these promoters uh, caspases or proteins that will kill those neurons and will allow us to identify the role of that neuron in the behavior. For example, if we are, were to kill AFD in a population of neurons by using by expressing just in AFD caspases, these animals are now incapable of performing the thermotaxis behavior. Although if we do behavioral assays like chemotaxis and other behavioral assays, they can perform it just fine. If we instead kill the interneuron, the animals will abnormally move towards the cold, even when they were raised at temperatures that were warmer. So for example, wild type animals usually will move towards me or the warmer temperatures in the gradient, but these animals that are lacking this interneuron will preferentially move towards the cold. Towards the end of my talk, I'll explain why this is the case. But you can see that the, the requirement of these single cells in the context of the living behaving animals, and one of the things that we wanted to understand is essentially how is it that these animals are capable of performing these behaviors. So we'll, I'll first focus on the sensory cell, and I'll tell you about some of the work that we have done to understand what the sensory cell is responding to. This work has, it's actually a corroboration of work that other groups have done. They were first shown by other groups. We developed in collaboration with Arabi Samuel at Harvard University a rig that allows us to precisely change temperature while simultaneously imaging the animals. We can express in single neurons a calcium sensor called GCAM6. You're going to see the responses in a second. This is a placeholder for now. Just to explain that over here, you're seeing changes in temperature, and this line here represents the temperature which the animals were cultivated or raised right before we did the experiment. And the little ball that's going along the kind of the, the, the waves just represents the temperature that the animal is seeing. So this is the cell body, it's the same as that cell body there. You can see nothing is happening. But once it hits that threshold of the cultivation temperature, every time it goes up, the neuron fires. So you, we're going to see it again. So when it's below the threshold, you don't see any responses in the neuron. But once it hits the threshold of the temperature the animal has seen, it's kind of like a sing-along, right? You can see the neuron firing. So this tells us, and it told the field, that these neurons are responding to increases of temperature above a given threshold. We will be representing the data like, with, like these heat maps. This represents the responses of a single animal. In this case, the animal I just showed you. And every time it gets more red, it represents more calcium responses. And this is just kind of like a, another way of displaying the data that we'll also see, where you see the every time it increases, it, the responses are increasing. So the two questions that we set to ask were the following. How is it that a complex stimuli, physical stimuli, like temperature, is encoded into an interpretable neuronal signal? So what is it that the animal is really seeing when it sees temperature? And the other question was, what is the cultivation temperature memory? Meaning, how and where is the memory encoded? How is the memory compared with the temperature that the animal is sensing? And how is the animal capable of executing the behavior, of performing, actuating the behavior? And the broad question that we, that, that we ended up addressing, that I'll be talking about in the next few slides, is how is it that plasticity mechanisms act in vivo at an acellular level to transform sensory information into behavior? The main concept here is that we want to link to fields that are seldomly linked, which is cell biology and behavior at the level of the synapse. 
The person that did this work was postdoctoral fellow Josh Hawk. And what he ended up discovering, which I'm going to summarize in this slide, and you'll see it again at the end of the lecture, is that essentially this sensory cell that I've been talking about called AFD, which I'm schematizing here, this is the dendrite, this is the axon, these green, green blobs represent the presynaptic sites, it's, it's, it has two different plasticity mechanisms that are enabling the animal to both represent and respond to temperature. One plasticity mechanism acts as the sensory side or the dendrite, where AFD is essentially acting as a contrast detector. It's sensing changes in temperature, not absolute temperatures, just if the temperature is getting warmer or colder with regards to the temperature you just saw. And that, is, that information is used almost as a compass to tell the animal where it is in the gradient. Then how it uh, processes that information, how it responds to that information is actually, we have evidence that it's encoded at the presynaptic sites. So it's presynaptic plasticity, we believe, that is encoded the learned behavioral preference. So AFD is telling the animal warmer, colder, and the animal says yes or no through the presynaptic plasticity mechanisms that I'll be describing today. So the project started with Josh just reproducing some of the um, very interesting and important findings that a number of labs in the field had generated regarding the, the responses of the animals to training and also the responses in the sensory cell to the temperature you just saw, which I'm going to summarize over here. So animals that are raised at 15 degrees Celsius, as you're seeing here, they move towards the cold, as I presented before. If they're raised at 20, these animals are kind of moving a little bit towards the warmth, but they tend to stay towards the middle. If they're raised at 25, they will move towards the warmer temperatures. And then when you do calcium imaging in AFD here, unlike the first uh, stimulus that I showed you, which was kind of like a wave, here we're just doing a ramp, a single ramp all the way up, and we're seeing where is it that AFD is responding. Each one of these lines represents a single animal that, are, that, are, that was raised at 15 degrees, and now we're seeing where AFD responds. And you can see that most of them are responding around here. If you actually, this is the aggregate response over here, and if you actually look, um, it is, if you follow the line here, it's about 15 degrees or 16 degrees that it's responding to. So, so that's the threshold. So it's responding to above that temperature. You do the same experiment, you're going to see, but now the animals are raised at 20 degrees, you're going to see that they're going to start responding a little bit further to the, to the right side of the screen, closer to me, which corresponds in the curve closer to 20 degrees, and the animals that were raised at 25 degrees are going to respond even further this way. You see all this blue represents no responses, but then these animals are starting to respond, and that corresponds to about 25 degrees right there. All right? So, this type of data suggested that these responses represent the preference. It represents where the animals want to go. And that was very exciting. So, because AFD co responses correlate with the temperature memory or the temperature preference. And that was a prevailing hypothesis in the field uh, that a number of groups, including us, thought to be true. Now, this is another way of representing that data. So, these are the three aggregates animals that are grown at 15, response around 15 or 16. 20 responds around 20, and 25 responds about 22 or 24, 25 degrees. So, but the problem was that there were other data in the field also showing that AFD was able to quickly adapt to temperature changes. So this is represented here. This is electrophysiological data from Miriam Goodman's lab, although the group from Piaulis and Gupta had also seen this with calcium imaging. And very briefly, what you're seeing here are the responses uh, as they're changing the temperature, which is color-coded, and if the animals are held at 18 degrees, they respond 
like this, but if they're held for about two minutes at 23 degrees, all of a sudden you can see this shift from here to here. So it moves a little bit to the right, suggesting that the sensory cell is adapting its temperature responses. So, so what does this mean then? Is it the memory or is it quickly adapting to temperature? And that is the question that Josh said to answer. What is AFD sensing and how does it relate to the memory of the animal? To do that, he did the following experiment, which this looks like a complicated diagram, but it's not. It's very simple. Essentially, what you do is that you deconvolve the temperature that the animal is seeing before the experiment from the temperature that it was raised at. So you can raise animals, you train them at these three different temperatures, but instead of just immediately testing them like it was done before, now you move them all for 30 minutes to 20 degrees. So the temperature they see right before the experiment is not the temperature that they were trained at, but the 20 degrees Celsius temperature. And now we know that then you can either perform thermotaxis experiments or you can do calcium imaging, which is what is represented here. Now we know from previous experiments that were done 40 years ago that if you hold animals for 30 minutes at a, at a different temperature, they will still perform like the, the training temperature, which we reproduced here. So if you raise them at 15 degrees over here and then you move them to 20, the animals will still move towards the colder temperatures. If you raise them at 25 and then move them to 20, they will still move towards the warmer temperatures. So the memory really correlates or corresponds to the training, not to the adaptation. This was known before and we reproduced it. Now the question is, what is AFD responding to? Is it responding to the training or the adaptation? And when we look at the responses, this is again the behavior I just showed you, when we look at the responses of AFD to our surprise, we saw that all of these animals, although they're performing different behaviors, when you look at their responses, they're essentially the same. They're all responding, and here you can see the, the aggregate, they're all responding to about 20 degrees. They're responding not to the temperatures that they were trained, but to the temperature they were held at before the experiment. So essentially they're adapting very quickly to the temperature that they see right before they're tested. So then we wanted to know how quickly, how quickly are they adapting? And before I tell you how quickly they're adapting, let me just compare these results to the results that I described at the beginning. So what is the difference between these results and the results that were published before? And essentially there's no difference. The, the main thing is the way that the experiments were done. So in our experiments, we are actually, as I explained, we're deconvolving, we're separating the training from the adaptation. So we're separating the temperatures that they saw when they were training for hours from the temperature they saw right before the experiment, and that's why you get this result that we see here. In the experiments that were published before, they were always held at the temperatures at which they were trained. So they're still responding to the temperature they see right before the experiment. It's just that people thought that that temperature corresponded to the training temperature because that the, that's the temperature they were at when trained, but it was also a temperature they were at right before the experiment. So that's why they saw these differences. So how fast are they adapting? And then we did the following experiment, which is very similar to the experiment I just explained. It's just that now we're changing them to the new temperature for varying amounts of time and seeing how fast they can change. And then we do, we do the calcium responses in AFD. And this is, okay, so here we're, I'm showing three graphs at three different conditions, like held at, uh, cultivated at 15, then switched to 20, 17, 22, 20, 25. And I just want to draw your attention to no matter what the absolute temperature is, the curves are very similar. And if you actually look at the time constants, the tau's, they're within like one or two minutes. So within one or two minutes, AFD is essentially completely resetting to the new temperatures that it's, that it's looking at. So, so this cannot be the memory because the thermotaxis behavior takes hours to reset. This is an experiment done by Russell and Hedgecock in 1975 where they saw that this here in, in this axis is hours. 
they saw that it takes about four hours for the animals to, that, that have been trained to go towards the warm to reset and go towards the cold and vice versa. It takes about four hours. So, and this takes two minutes. So it cannot be, this cannot be the memory. So here as a way of a summary, so we can get to the part of the lecture where I actually talk about the memory. I'm just going to tell you what AFD is doing according to our work and also consistent with published studies from other groups. AFD is not sensing absolute temperatures, it senses changes in temperature. It tells the animal if it's going warmer or colder. It adapts very quickly and that allows the animals to keep a dynamic range of, of sensory um, capacity over a gradient. And, the, and it responds to the just experienced temperature. It doesn't respond to the, to the previous memory that the animal was, uh, the temperature preference that the animal was trained to like. The sensory mechanisms used by this cell to respond to temperature and to sense temperature are actually um, summarized here and they were identified by a number of labs through molecular genetic studies. One of the things that I always found surprising as a researcher working in C. elegans was that C. elegans wasn't using in this neuron uh, trip channels to sense temperature. But now that we understand what this neuron is responding to, it makes more sense that it uses these one in cyclase receptors and cyclic GMP-dependent mechanisms. Because if you actually look at the molecular pathways used by AFD to respond to temperature, they're reminiscent of those used by photoreceptors. So photoreceptors sense changes in light, they're contrast detectors, and they use cyclic GMP as nonlinear amplifiers, and that's essentially what AFD is doing. It's, it's sensing changes in temperature and it's using cyclic GMP as a nonlinear amplifier using molecular mechanisms almost identical to those used by photoreceptors. And it makes sense that it doesn't use strip channels because strip channels respond to temperature ranges rather than, than relative temperature changes, which is what AFD is responding to. If you're interested in AFD temperature responses, I suggest looking at Pialis and Gupta's recent uh, work and also a number of other labs that I have cited here that talk about the molecular mechanisms that they have identified in the past 20 years regarding the ability of AFD to sense temperature. But I'd like to move on now to where the, where the cultivation temperature memory is, which is um, the other part of these plasticity mechanisms that the animal is using. So to do this, we decided to examine the calcium responses in the postsynaptic neuron. So AFD has a single chemical synapse that it forms onto a neuron called AIY. I've been showing you this experiment here. This is again AFD in which we are training the animals to prefer 20 degrees, but importantly, the responses in AFD, as I mentioned, are not dependent on the training temperature, but on the temperature that it was just held, or the TH, 20 degrees. So as we increase the temperature, the animals respond around 20 degrees, which was the temperature at which it was just held. When we look at the AIY responses, we observe that it's also responding around 20 degrees, but the response frequency is less than that seen for AFD. We know that these are responses that are emergent from AFD because we can eliminate AFD and get rid of those responses. So these are experiments that we, in which we are expressing the calcium indicator in AIY, and expressing caspases that are eliminating AFD in the living organisms, and we see that there are no responses in AIY, none of these responses that we were previously observing. Here I'm going to summarize the responses that we see in AIY due to temperature. So in postsynaptic AIY, which I'm pseudo-coloring in blue throughout my presentation, 
we see that there are multiple temperature responses. I'm just going to be focusing on one of them, this one, which is AFD dependent. And it represents increases above cultivation temperature. So when AFD fires here, that signal is transmitted onto AIY. Now, the kinetics are somewhat different, as you can notice here, but that is the, the signal that is transmitted to AIY. And that signal is similar in terms of timing to that of AFD and also dependent on AFD. Although, we, as I mentioned, we see less response frequency in the AFD responses, in the, in the AIY responses as compared to the AFD responses. So the sensory cell responds much more robustly across different animals than the AIY, where, for example, these animals here were not really seeing responses. So we decided to look at this at different cultivation temperatures. And again, the experiment that we're doing here is that we're training these animals at 20 degrees, and then we move them. In this case, we're moving them to 20 degrees, so we're keeping them at the same temperature. And AFD is going to be responding to the temperature it was just moved. So all of these animals that I'm going to be showing you are, were all held at 20 for a few minutes, so that AFD responds to 20. But they were trained at different temperatures, 25, 20, 15. I'm going to be showing you 15 and 25 in a second. Here are the 20 degree ones, and we see few response frequency in AFY. So let's now look at the animals that were raised at 15. Again, AFD responds just like this AFDs here, so very robust free response frequency. When the animals are just moved to 20 degrees, even if they were cultivated at 15, that's similar to what I showed before. But if we look at AIY, we see that the response frequency is far less as compared to the animals that were trained at 20 degrees Celsius. If we do this experiment for 25 degrees, AFD response frequency is similar across all three conditions, but the AIY response frequency depends on the cultivation temperature. With 25 responding more robustly, almost all animals are responding, about uh, three quarters of the animals. About half of them when they're raised at 20, and about 10% of them when they're raised at 15 degrees. So, in summary, the frequency of responses in AIY correlate to the cultivation temperature at which the animals were held. And this is the postsynaptic, this is in the postsynaptic neuron to the sensory cell. The sensory cell is responding the same. But the postsynaptic neuron is responding less or more depending on the cultivation temperature. But this is a correlation, so we wanted to see if this correlation helped held water. And to do that, we wanted to genetically uncouple the preference from the experience, which sounds very complicated, but it's going to become uh, very clear in a second. We have mutants in, that display different preferences, although they have experienced the same thing. So we can, we're capable of uncoupling them. So this is, for example, a gain of function in a kinase called protein kinase C. When you have that gain of function mutation, and you express that, that overactive kinase just in AFD, you don't affect, I'm not showing this data, but I'm telling you, that you don't affect the sensory ability of AFD, but you affect the preference of the animal. Now, the animals are always going to the cold, even if they were cultivated at 20 degrees. So this is the wild-type animals cultivated at 20 degrees. Now, you have a loss of function. That's kind of the opposite of the gain of function. So now you have a kinase that is not active. Now the animals always move to the worm. And this is not affecting, again, the sensory cell. It's affecting something else I'll show you in a second, which is the synaptic communication with the postsynaptic partner. But for the purposes of this experiment, what it allows us to do is decouple the preference from the experience because all these animals are experiencing the same thing, but they have different preferences. So now we can ask, how are the sensory responses transmitted onto the postsynaptic partner AIY? So again, so these animals, they phenocopy. These ones phenocopy animals that were raised at 25 degrees, although they were raised at 20. And these animals phenocopy animals that were raised at 15 degrees, although they were raised at 20 degrees. 
So a word on what this molecule is, this is protein kinase C, which is similar to PKC epsilon. It's a novel PKC, it's activated by a, an intermediate signaling molecule called DAG. It's known to enhance glutamate release and neuropeptide release, both from work in vertebrates and in C. elegans. And also in the vertebrate systems, it has been shown to be coupled or con to contribute to presynaptic LTP. So if you look at the wild-type animals, you, get, you see responses both in AFD and in AIY. The responses in AIY for animals grown at 20 degrees is that a bunch of animals don't respond, as I was mentioning earlier. So what about animals grown at 20 degrees, but in the PKC, lots of gain-of-function mutants that always move towards the cold? And interestingly, those animals, although they were raised at 20 degrees, the same temperature as these ones, they show the different preference. They always move towards the cold, and they have fewer responses. Animals from the loss of function mutant that were also grown at 20 degrees have many more responses. So let me, let me bring this together. So this is, again, the results from the genetic mutants for the, gain of, for the PKC gain of function or the PKC loss of function that show very different responses in AFY, lots of responses, very few responses. They look very similar to the wild-type animals that were raised at 15 degrees or were raised at 25 degrees. And these animals are actually doing the same thing. So again, this is the PKC loss of function moved towards the warmth, and the PKC gain of function moved towards the cold. So we, now it's not only a correlation, it's actually, we can see a very direct um, association between the responses in AIY and the preference of the animal. And I want to emphasize again that this, this PKC, through experiments that my lab and other groups have done, particularly Igwe Mori and Miriam Goodman, we have shown that this is acting actually in the sensory cell, but it's acting in the sensory cell not to affect the sensory cell's ability to respond to temperature, but to affect its communication with the postsynaptic cell AIY. So to summarize what our model was at this point, it was that AFD, the sensory responses were acting as a contrast detector. Think of it as a, as a compass that is encoding complex temperature gradients as digital directional signals, just telling the animal you're going warmer, you're going colder. But how the animal responds to that information is actually in part encoded at the presynaptic size through PKC, which is affecting the communication with the postsynaptic partner, which is the responses that we were that I just showed you. And our data was suggestive that presynaptic plasticity in AFD, regulated by a conserved kinase, uh, is a conserved kinase that's similar to MPKC epsilon invertebrates, is transforming these signals that AFD is emitting by telling the animal you're going warmer, you're going colder, is transforming it into a preference by gaining synaptic communication with the postsynaptic cell. Essentially, you can have two scenarios that we can think of here. So animals that want to move towards the cold or animals that want to move towards the warmth, they're migrating up or down the gradient. And if the animals are, are, want to move towards the cold, when the, when the animal is actually sensing increases of temperature, the AFD is still going to be firing the same as, as if it was raised under these conditions. The AFD does the same thing. But the probability that those responses get communicated to the postsynaptic partner is lower in this situation because of, because of the presynaptic plasticity mechanisms. And that is necessary for the animals to know that they're supposed to move towards the cold. So, so the, the, the sensory cell is saying you're going warm, and the, but the postsynaptic cell is not responding. And, that, and then the animal moves towards the cold. Conversely, if the animals were trained to like the warmth, AFD is going to be responding, you're going warm, 
and then the probability of response in the postsynaptic cell increases. So when AFD responds, the postsynaptic cell responds, and then the animals move towards the warmth. Now, if, if this was true, if what I just said, if the model I presented was correct, you can make a few predictions of how you could alter it and affect the behavior of the animal. So if this is true and you could make AIY respond every time AFD responds, then you will predict those animals will move towards the warmth. Because AFD will be telling the animals you're going warm and AIY will be saying yes, so the animals will move towards the warmth. That's a prediction for our model. And we can do that experiment. We can do that by creating artificial or ectopic gap junctions. So it turns out that invertebrates have gap junctions, but they used molecules that are called inexins. And inexins are different from the molecules that are used by vertebrates to make gap junctions, which are called connexins. So you can take connexins from vertebrates and, and express them ectopically in invertebrates and make ectopic gap junctions that do not interact with the endogenous gap junction machinery that the invertebrate has. This is a technique that was used by Bill Schaefer, and we adapted for uh, this circuit. And we're essentially short-circuiting the circuit here, and we're bypassing the PKC-mediated plasticity. So, so here are a few predictions that you can make from that experiment. The responses in AIY, once you have those ectopic gap junctions, are not going to depend on the cultivation temperature experience, because PK, you got bypassing PKC. So PKC is what's holding the cultivation temperature experience. So it's not going to depend on that, because now you can, the signal is going to go through the gap junction. Now, every time AFD fires, which is going to be every time the animal senses that the temperature is getting warmer, AIY is also going to fire. So the animals are going to think that they like that temperature, and they're always going to go towards the warmth. So this should, the increased responses in AIY should alter the behavioral preference, and the animals should be constitutively thermophilic. Now, the, in the PKC gain of function phenotype, I show you that the signal is not going through. AFD is firing, but the postsynaptic cell doesn't fire. Correspondingly, and those animals always abnormally prefer to go towards the cold. If you make this gap junction, you will predict that you will suppress that abnormal cold-seeking behavior of the animal. So let's see if, if this is the case. So I, we did a lot of controls related to this experiment, by the way. We, gap junctions are formed by hemichannels that need to be expressed both in the presynaptic cell and the postsynaptic cell. So to do the experiment I'm about to describe, we expressed the hemichannels, we integrated the lines, we did a battery of sensory tests and calcium imaging to show that those lines were normal, and they were. We took those animals, we mated them. Now you have the two hemichannels in the two cells, so you can form the gap junction. And that's the experiment I'm going to be showing you right now. So normally, as I, as I have discussed before in wild-type animals, animals that were raised at 15 degrees Celsius don't respond. The AIY doesn't respond when, when the animals are sensing warmth. The AIY doesn't respond with high fidelity. And those animals are cold-seeking. So if you make the gap junction, all of a sudden, you see in AIY very strong responses, even though the animals were grown at 15 degrees Celsius. And these animals are now abnormally uh, thermophilic. I also want to draw your attention to kind of the, the shape of this curve, which if you go to the beginning of my talk and you compare the kinetics, when I was measuring the kinetics of the AFD responses versus the AIY responses were different, those look just like AFD, which is exactly what you would expect if the if it was an electrical gap junction, if the communication was electrical. So, so this shows that two of our predictions are correct. The AIY responses do not depend on the cultivation temperature experience once you make those gap junctions. Now, AIY, every time AFD responds, AIY responds. So the communication is, is, is going through the gap junction. And also, 
the increases in responses altered the behavioral preference. So now these animals that were raised to like the cold, now they move towards the warmth because every time that AFD responds, AIY responds and, and they become warm-seeking. Now we're going to test this last prediction that you're able to suppress PKC gain of function phenotype through the creation of these gap junctions. So again, these are, now these animals were not raised at 15, they were raised at 20 degrees. You could raise them at 25, they'll do the same thing. You get very few responses in AFY when you're testing in a temperature ramp, and they're cold seeking. So again, they phenocopy the animals that were raised in the cold. When you do the experiment of the gap junction, essentially, when you, when you link them through the gap junction, you see that the responses in AFY are much increased, and these animals are now moving towards the warmth. Now, I want to address, address something, which is that not all of the animals in this experiment are actually uh, responding to, to the increases in temperature, as we saw in the previous experiment. And the reason is because, unlike the previous experiment, in this line, we did not integrate the arrays. So some of these animals are mosaic animals. So I, we actually use this to our advantage. For example, here you can note these animals here, which are actually moving towards the cold instead of towards the warmth. When we isolate those animals, we observe that those animals, and we've done this now over a dozen different times, those animals, unlike its siblings, are not carrying the array in both the AFD and the AFY responses. So they serve as a control to validate the point that I'm making. That is, when you have those gap junctions, that you actually uh, get these type of responses, and you make the animals move now towards the warm side um, all the time. So, so to summarize, our model um, or our data suggests a model, which is the following. This, you have two different plasticity mechanisms that are acting within a single cell. One of them is a sensory adaptation mechanism that allows the cell to take uh, sensory-rich information like temperature and turn it, turn it into kind of like a digital signal, like a contrast detector, like yes or no, you're going warmer, you're going colder type of, type of response. And then, and then that information is filtered through the presynaptic plasticity mechanisms, which are mediated by PKC. And so the sensory adaptation acts as a, as a compass to allow the animal to navigate the gradient. And the presynaptic plasticity encodes the preference by gaining synaptic communication with the postsynaptic partner, AIY. Now, there are a number of questions that we still don't understand that we're, that we're trying to address. For example, everything I've told you about is regards increases in temperature. We don't understand how the animals are responding to decreases in temperature or negative thermotaxis. That's something that we're working on. We also don't know the molecular mechanisms by which PKC is acting. We're very excited about this because PKC is a conserved uh, molecule throughout evolution that has been shown to be involved in synaptic plasticity and memory in other organisms. And we have a genetically tractable system to be able to answer that question. And to, to be able to understand the neurotransmitter logic that's been regulated by PKC in the communication between the presynaptic cell and the postsynaptic neuron. Also, we think that PKC is bypassing the sensory, uh, the memory in this, um, in this axonal region. So we, by changing the activity of PKC, we are altering the, 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 uh, the learned behavioral preference of this organism, which gives us a molecular foothold to understand the signal translation mechanisms that are acting upstream of PKC to encode for the memory. And that, that's, that's essentially what we're doing right now to understand the plasticity and memory in single cells and link the cell biology, which was the talk that I, that I presented in the second part of my three lecture series, that cell biology to this behavior. 
So here you're looking at the distribution of presynaptic sites in AFD, and you can see PKC is actually enriching the cell body that you see here, but it's also enriched at these sites in the axon, and those sites correspond to presynaptic sites that you can visualize also with a RAP3 marker. You can see them here in yellow. So, so we are um, now examining the dynamic localization of PKC to single synapses during learning and what regulates that. And we have also done forward genetic screens to identify mechanisms by which PKC is affecting its action. So here, for example, you have the PKC mutants that always are, called, are worm-seeking. These are the loss of function mutants. And we can take these mutants and mutagenize them and find animals in which this is a double mutant with an unknown suppressor mutation in which the animals now, surprisingly, behave like wild-type animals. So we're very interested in identifying what is the genetic lesion that is reversing this type of, this type of gain of function mutation or, or loss of function mutation, rather, in the PKC mutant, but we're also doing forward genetic screens for the gain of function mutants. And that is essentially how we can examine the cell biology of the synapse, both in development and in behavior, through imaging the formation of the synapses and their function, and how it's maintained, and also how they're modified with learning and memory, as I showed in this, in this third part of the talk today. And with that, I'd like to conclude by thanking the lab that did the work, our collaborators that enabled us to to perform these, these experiments and the funding agencies. Thank you.